Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon. It's just after 1 p.m. and you're live on the Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. I'm not alone this time. My partner in crime is back, is back in the country. Greg Nicholson, how are you doing? It's good to be back. I assume, I assume last week when I wasn't here, you just cancelled the show. I mean, <laughs> I mean, Gareth hasn't fired me yet, so I kind of done too badly, man. I think I'm doing okay. Fun fact about the song we just played, Designer, I mean, Panda by Designer. He bought that beat off YouTube, and then Kanye West heard it, and then put it on his album, and now he's super famous. Amazing. Don't ask me any more questions. That's all I've got. That's like my pop culture fix for the day, man. Luckily, we don't have a show on pop culture. <laughs> before we get into it, Greg, how was Addis? Oh, it was incredible. A beautiful city. Good times. I've never been there before, but hopefully, you know, if we keep doing this, we'll get rich one day. It was fantastic being there. I was there for the for the Economic Commission of Africa um, conference and just the sort of excitement, as well as some of the, many of the challenges being raised about um, industrialization, development mm. uh, in Africa. All right, we, we we'd love to talk you know talk a bit more about that. Maybe maybe next week or something we'll squeeze it in. But now to get into the the details of today's show, we'll be talking about the Panama Papers. I mean, this has been trending on Twitter for ages. Everybody's talking about it, and I was just sitting there being like, "What's going on?" So we structured sort of the show to dig into to what's happening. So this was a set of over ten million confidential documents that had lots of detailed information about what they call offshore companies, and these were listed in a, in a sort of a Panamanian, which is Panama. The, the from Panama word is Panamanian, which I found out quite recently. <laughs> and this firm called Mossack Fonseca. And it's really just what's going on. So we've, we've sort of scheduled, you know, interviews with a bunch of people and experts who've written books and sort of policy and tax experts to really dig into what's going on. So first we'll be speaking to Nicholas Shackson. Nicholas, can you hear us? I can hear you. Yes. Hi. Okay. Fantastic. Just to introduce, um, Nicholas is an author of an incredible, incredible book called Treasure Islands, Tax Havens and the Men Who Stole the World. Some might say that it's a bit of sort of hyperbole, but it's, it's really not, Nicholas. The more we find out about this, it feels like people are really stealing the, you know, the whole world's money. Yeah. I mean, that is, you know, it's obviously uh, hyperbole in the t- yeah. title, The Men Who Stole the World. But, but really one of the messages of the book was that tax havens which, you know, quite some years ago, people would see them as a marginal, exotic sideshow mm. to the world economy. They really are central to what's going on now. If you want to understand, finance, you know, the globalization era since the 1980s, you cannot understand it without understanding tax havens. They're a great fault line. Offshore is the great fault line in the global economy. If you want us to understand political power in mm. country after country, um, rich and poor, um, you, you will find that tax havens are implicated in, a, in our elites um, all over the world. It's yeah. absolutely enormous. I mean, that's what's really emerging. And, and, and Nicholas, just as I sort of read and try and digest all this, the, the question that keeps popping up in my head is, is how does a tax haven become a tax haven? And especially thinking about Panama. I mean, could you give us just some history? How does, how does something like that be, sort of get created or emerge? Well, it's, it's a very good question. It's, 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 uh, each, it, the, the offshore world is like an ecosystem. There's lots of different tax havens offering different mixes of things. And, um, you know, they started up at different times. Panama, for example, uh, very interestingly, it was set up by U.S. financial interests um, in the 19, um, in 1903. Um, they, U.S. interests pulled Panama away. It was a province of Colombia and they s- helped foment a rebellion um, to make it an independent country, originally to help with the Panama Canal. But quite soon, 
Wall Street interests were using um, Panama to set up shell companies to help Standard Oil and other other big oil companies avoid taxes, escape U.S. taxes. And then that quickly grew into a tax haven. Um, Around the world, there has been a huge growth of tax havens, particularly since the 1980s, 1970s, 1980s, the era of globalization. Mm. In the Mm. old days, it was kind of Swiss, quiet, slow, Swiss banking secrecy where, you know, Swiss bankers would promise to take your secrets to the grave. But from the era of globalization, you had a whole new series of players come into the game. You had particularly the British dependencies, the overseas territories, Mm. the last remnants of the British Empire, um, which (coughs) are still tax havens today. And they are they include some of the biggest tax havens, Cayman Islands, British Virgin Islands, Bermuda. Um, These places um, were tolerated by Britain and they started offering a much more sort of hyperactive Anglo-Saxon variety of tax havens where they're looking for quick um, fast, huge, um, hot money flows from around the world. They, they set up a secrecy facility and suddenly loads of people will bring their money, their dirty money to these places. Um, they set up a new tax loophole and they find that the multinationals will come and bring their money. Um, and these places get rich and they help feed money up to the city of London. And, but I guess the simplest answer to your question is how, you know, how did tax havens evolve? They are, at the end of the day, projects of the world's wealthy, most powerful and wealthiest people and corporations. Um, It is a project of our elites and it is they who set them up. They're looking for escape routes. They're looking for ways to escape the rules of society, whether those rules be tax or whether they be um, inheritance rules or financial regulation or whatever. They're looking for places to take their money elsewhere so they no longer have to submit to the laws of your own country. And that's obviously got very disturbing implications for democracy. I mean, I can imagine just doing my research and hearing that, I mean, Panama, you know, having to be was previously a, a province of Colombia and then the United States steps in and they're like, no, we'll take over from here. That's just that's just our baby. Now we'll take over. And just I think now we forget that these things had to be created from somewhere. Um, and and you me- you've mentioned a lot uh, in your writing, sort of the role of the world powers, as you've just mentioned, and and specifically countries like Jersey, the Isle of Man, the Cayman Islands. Um, could you just give us a bit more detail? Where are these places, and and what is the sort of the colonial um, sort of relationship, and how has that moved into where it is now? Yeah, well, there's, I mean, the world um, system has kind of four or five groupings of tax havens. There's there's the British system, which uh, uh, the ones we've mentioned, Jersey, Guernsey, Cayman Islands, and so on. Um, which are um, uh, under very much under British control. They have the Queen's head on their stamps and banknotes and legislation is approved in London, but they have their own kind of independent politics. Um, and they do feed a lot of money to the City of London and they are very, very heavily infiltrated in the British establishment. Mm. I mean, the big scandal in Britain at the moment is that David Cameron, the Prime Minister, has been found to have his family um, family shareholding. The Panama Papers have exposed family shareholdings in um, <coughs> in Panama and elsewhere, um, which is which is really convulsing the politics in Britain at the moment. Um, so that's the, the British network, and it's probably the most important part of the whole offshore system. There's another um, poll that most people wouldn't be aware of, and that's the United States. The United States is itself a very very big tax haven. And it has um, uh, huge, huge numbers of people send their money to the United States and they know that the U.S. isn't going to share that information with their own tax authorities or their own crime fighting authorities. So you can set up a, a company in Delaware or Nevada where the company will own stuff. It might own bank accounts or, or racehorses mm. or paintings or whatever, but you'll never be able to find out who owns that company. Um, and so the U.S. for this and other reasons is a, is a huge tax haven. 
there's obviously another European grouping um, that includes Switzerland and Luxembourg and a few smaller players. Um, and then there's a fourth grouping, which is an Asian grouping, which is most notably Hong Kong and Singapore, which generally focus on the sub on, on that region and they take money, dirty money from all, all over the place. Um, but Panama is kind of a little bit uncategorized. It's, it's sort mm. of in the US orbit, but not completely. Um, it has focused very heavily on Latin America. And Panama has made a business model, along with a few other tax havens like Dubai and Mauritius which had, and the Bahamas, which has the business model has been basically we're going to go down market. We're not going to cooperate with international initiatives. We're going to take really dirty money. I mean, there's stuff like, you know, drugs money and mafia money that the Cayman Islands doesn't really want this stuff anymore. I and mean, they used to many mm. years ago. This, they moved into other areas now. They moved into hedge funds and private equity. But Panama has said, we're just going to take anything. We don't care. You know, drugs money from Mexico and Colombia. That's that's fine with us. And they just it's just about turning a blind eye. So Panama, you know, it's fantastic that this this leak has happened. It's exposed all the, you know, the, the sheer corruption and and um, criminality that the tax haven system um, has been fostering. I mean, fascinating. I'm 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 so surprised that you mentioned this. What sounds like a bit of a hierarchy from almost if I can call them higher tier uh, tax havens that deal with you know the hedge fund money and the private equity money, and you're and you're saying there's the lower tier, the bottom of the barrel. It sounds like that where if you're funding sort of drugs or if you're funding some kind of war or or arms dealing, it it flows through there. That's 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 such an interesting distinction. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, there it really is a hierarchy, and it is an ecosystem. Um, I mean, I, I should hesitate to add that there's plenty of um, dirty dealings go through hedge funds and private equity. Lots of, you know, um, uh, corrupt criminal origin money goes through these things in the Cayman Islands. But they are so, you know, they have, you know, they're just not interested in getting, you know, having international probes find that there's huge amounts of money, drugs money going through the Cayman Islands. So there is, you know, there are degrees of <coughs> of dirt. And lots of things, you know, you can get some, there's been some very dirty business exposed using UK companies. Um, the UK itself hasn't been, you know, hasn't been paying any attention really to what its own companies are doing. There's lots of shell companies set in the UK and, and you know, there's a good case involving Scotland recently where a substantial proportion of Moldova's GDP was um, found to have been siphoned off into, into some shell companies set up on a Scottish um, council estate. Um, it's, this thing is kind of infecting the whole world. Um, and it, it, it really is, you know, it'll be having tremendously bad in, uh, impacts on South Africa and, and all countries, really. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm also just a bit confused, I must say, because when we think tax havens, we think of these far-flung sort of exotic areas like the islands we've mentioned. But you're mentioning Hong Kong, Dubai, London, Nevada. So I suppose the question is, what makes a tax haven a tax haven? Because it seems to be, it's not about being sort of a small country that people don't pay attention to. It seems to be sort of something else. Yeah, it's true. And that is that, you know, the traditional view is tax havens as, you know, Switzerland plus a bunch of small yeah. islands. Yeah. That has generally been how people have seen it. Mm. But what... <coughs> You know, I people <coughs> ask me to define what a tax haven is, and I kind of boil it down to two words. Um, those words are escape and elsewhere. In other words, you take your money elsewhere to escape the rules of society. Those rules might be tax rules. Um, they might be disclosure. They might be financial regulation. They might be, um, uh, you know, you might want to hide your money from your spouse. That's a very common one in, in divorce battles. People often use tax havens to, to hide their money from, from their angry spouse. Um, it's usually wives because it's usually men who use the tax havens. And, and so um, uh, 
it is all about law avoidance. Um, it, it, it is a mechanism that the, the world's elites have set up in order that they, you know, other people can, can obey the law, but they don't have to. And that's really, really what it's about. And so these big economies have been getting into the game. The United States has been deliberately, very quietly, setting itself up as a tax haven in the era of, um, since the era of the Vietnam War. I mean, I found some documents um, from a, 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 a that was handed to someone in a lift, um, some, uh, someone from the U.S. Um, State Department handed this document to someone in a lift, which which basically said, um, we, we're now going to start out a, a strategy to become like Switzerland. We're going to go after all that dirty money that's out there that Switzerland is currently getting. Um, and the reason that this happened then was that with the Vietnam War, the U.S. was, you know, spending a lot of money overseas. It was opening up these huge external deficits. Yeah. And it needed to find sources of finance to come into the United States to to bring the dollars home. And so they so becoming a tax haven and setting up secrecy facilities um, to encourage to tempt this hot money um, back to the United States to address the, 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 these opening up deficits was a deliberate strategy. Nobody was talking about it. People who were playing the game knew exactly what they were doing. Um, and but for many years, it sort of went under the radar. Nobody called the United States a tax haven. I think that story is now getting out. If you mm. go to a search engine and put in tax haven USA, you'll find a lot of stuff. But that's mm. only come out in the last year or so, I think, um, that people really started waking up to it. Nicholas, it seems that so from this African perspective here in South Africa, you mentioned how, how dramatic the impact this sort of stuff has on, on South Africa. But for countries in the region around here that have in the past been colonized, they're currently developing countries, it seems like all of this is just a, another facet of, of sort of ongoing looting by, by big global companies and Western nations. Yes, I mean, you're quite right. There's no single cause of, of all these, all, you know, all these problems and corruption and all, you know, all kinds of problems that ail all countries. Um, you get a lot of tax haven defenders saying, don't, you know, don't point to us tax havens, point to the, you know, the bad leaders and the mm. bad rulers in these mm. countries. And the answer to that is, you know, of course you do both. Um, but also the fact that you have a whole system offshore um, willing to take their wealth, someone loots, you know, steals something from the government or from a, from a country, you know, a, a dictator or their cronies or whoever, then they've got this whole international mechanism and a whole infrastructure of people ready to help them hide it. And that, the existence of that exist infrastructure has a huge impact on, um, on, you know, this problem of imp impunity, the problem of bad governance. It's certainly not the only cause of bad governance, but it is a huge contributor to it. It is a great big criminogenic environment that encourages people to, to behave badly. Um, in the old days before, you know, in the, in the era of the robber barons in the United States, you mm. had, um, all these people doing similarly nasty things, but they didn't have this infrastructure to, um, you know, shovel all their money offshore and to make it disappear. They kept it in their own country and they reinvested it. And for all the sort of crimes that were committed, um, you know, there was, there were more benefits that came out, that, that came out of their, out of their, their, nefarious activities you know at least they invested it at home but with the offshore system it's all fleeing it's all going somewhere else you know all ending up in london and paris and new york and it's not helping anybody in south africa i mean i hear you nick and i'm just sorry i like how i'm calling you nick now i've just jumped into sort of best best friend territory um but just <laughs> one one question you mentioned the impact of all this on on democracy and i i think that's such an interesting sort of sort of subsection of all this and, and I'd love if you could just focus on, on London as a city and how the banks and, and the corporations they have affected uh, how London is uh, sort of 
in, from a governance perspective relative to the to the wider UK and and how sort of the the, the the large power and control some of these banks and institutions have can 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 affect sort of local politics international politics through how they affect sort of the the democratic process yeah well that's a another that's a huge and very peculiar story yeah now this the term city of london <coughs> in the uk means is taken to mean two things the first thing it means is just the uk financial services sector and those financial services can be in in um you know central london in canary wharf some of it's in edinburgh in scotland um you know it's it, it's all over the place mostly mostly in central london but another meaning of the term city of london mm. um is used to refer to this strange creature called the city of london corporation and what that is that is is um a peculiar body that is uh, on on one level it's a local authority it's a local authority for the square mile that if you get a map of london and you take a square mile chunk right at the very center of it mm. um, and at the middle of it is the bank of england that is that local authority is the city of london corporation and if you go in there you'll see the road signs have all got a little a little um uh, particular sort of um uh, marking on it that, that show this is the city of london corporation but it is also a great big old boys network and a lobbying organization for financial services and for financial deregulation the city of london corporation has a lord mayor who's nothing to do with the mayor of london he is a different person um he goes around in a gold in gold carriages and the tourists love it um but he um his job is officially to lobby for financial liberalization um there's no other local authority in the world the head of it has that kind of role there is a character in the british parliament called the remembrancer um who sits uh, facing the speaker and he carries intelligence to the city of london corporation and he lobbies for financial reform and financial deregulation um the city of london doesn't have its the, the, the democracy in the city of london is completely different from in the rest of britain in that local authority there are no political parties it is um uh and the corporations themselves that are in the city of london corp- it, within that square mile as the corporations that operate there have a corporate vote alongside the humans who live there there's about 10 to 15,000 people who live in that in that area but the corporations also get a vote um so it's a very peculiar creature and it it is kind of rather offshore like because there's quite a few of normal laws of the UK that don't quite apply in the U- in 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 the city of London and in the square mile when the queen visits the square mile she has to go through this strange ceremony at the border where she um the the lord mayor touch she pulls out a sword and the lord mayor touches the sword and um it's it's a symbol that there is this kind of strange um jurisdictional difference when you enter the city of london um it it sounds like a conspiracy theory mm. it sounds bizarre mm. and and many british people aren't really aware of it but it is you can find you can look this all up on the internet look you know go and look at city of london corporation you'll find all these peculiar things going on um and they have been among the most powerful defenders of finance and they have their existence they have existed for about a thousand years and they have over the centuries um carved out all sorts of roles for themselves because of their um incredible financial position and um yeah it, it's it's a it's a really bizarre thing but it is a, you know an incredibly powerful reason why the city of london is so is so strong I mean, i hear you and like you said it really just drives home the you know the impact of democracy nicholas unfortunately that's all the time we have thank you for making time i know things are crazy with nice. your sort of press diary right now so thanks for making time thanks a lot very nice talking okay to you. perfect thank See. you
If you're just tuning in, it's the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. We're talking about the Panama Papers and trying to figure out where all this is coming from. What do these papers mean? And 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 a big question that I've been thinking about is 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 who did all the research and who are the people digging into this? So we've we've reached out to investigative journalist um, Lionel Fall, who should be on Skype right now, and he was associated with Amabungane, freelance journalist now, and he was part of the International Consortium of Investigative Journalism. This is over 300 journalists from, you know, uh, you know, over 100 news organizations that have been pouring through this and, and really digging into what's going on. Um, Lionel, can you hear us? Kingsley, I can. Hi. Fantastic. Lionel, I'm, I'm just so, so fascinated by the story. It just sounds so cloak and dagger. And I'm curious to hear how did you get involved? How did they contact you? And, and how did you get involved in sort of digging through this, this massive, massive pile of documentation? It's an amazing tale of cloak and dagger in terms of the way that um, an anonymous source reached out to a German investigative journalist um, probably about a year ago um, and did so anonymously um, and set up an encrypted method whereby this massive, massive tranche of Mossack Fonseca, this Panamanian law firm's um, internal records were were disclosed. Um, from there, the, the German journalists um, reached out to the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists um, who have done international collaborations of this nature before. You mm. might remember a year or so ago, um, they published the, um, I think they called it Swiss Leaks, which is about um, HSBC banking data. And, and, and that was shared with, with ICIJ's partners. And then essentially Amabungane, who I worked um on this project for, um, they um, are partners with the ICIJ and um, the ICIJ has partners all over the world. And given the worldwide nature of this, of this uh, data tranche, um, they asked us if, if we'd like to get involved. So how did it work, Lionel? Did they, did they just sort of give you a call and say, look, we're working on this big thing. Do you want to get involved and send you a truckload of documents or <laughs> how does it work from there? Um, the, the ICIJ network's a brilliant model of journalism because, you know, with international finance now and, and, and the way that the world is globalized, um, one can no longer sit in, in, in one's own country or, or one's yeah. own silo and, and really hope to, to kind of get to grips with the scale and the extent of, of, of some of the cross-border or, or, or multinational goings-on. Um, so from, from that respect, um, it, it totally makes sense to have this, this network of of kind of loosely affiliated organizations around the world that can spring into action at a moment's notice. And, and essentially, um, this is not the first time and it, and it, and it won't be the last that, um, Amabungane has been called into action, um, to look at things from a South African perspective on a big international collaboration. Um, and then to answer your question, yes, essentially, um, I mean, lines of communication are always open. Um, they reach out to us and, uh, we, we get involved. I mean, you mentioned that you were sort of focusing on the on the South African perspective. So, do you just you know get an email with an attachment and start pouring through? How did you? Was it a team involved? How do you divide up who works on what? Mm. So, I'm sure you can appreciate there's a little bit of sensitivity about how mm. how we access the data. Yeah. Um, so, I'm I'm loath to to divulge too much about that. Yeah. Safe to say that we do have a way of accessing the entire database. Um, and so not not just uh, the the South African names or the South African entities. Mm. Um, obviously, it, it makes sense to focus on those and, and, and then to kind of roll that out. Um, so 
where, for example, um, the, the story that was published in the Business Day last week um, about the entity linked to Kulubuse Zuma that has actually um, acquired some oil blocks in Lake Albert in DRC. That's an example of taking the story kind of cross-border. Um, but essentially, um, yes, we we can access the data and and the sort of mission was, was to focus on the, the South African angle or the South African element to it um, and, and to see what we could find. I mean, I love that you sort of, you know, taken us naturally to see what we could find. Um, and I'm, I'm curious to hear from you, what were some of the most sort of interesting revelations as you worked on this and or as you saw other people work on sort of different bits of it? What what for you really stood out from from this this process? Hello, Obviously, Matt? it was interesting oh, looking at yeah. the, the, the the breadth and depth of people who who use this this offshore system. Mm. Um, in South Africa, um, what what's immediately clear is is that there are about fifty companies um, and about one hundred people um, who registered companies with Mossack Fonseca and gave South African addresses, but. That is merely the tip of the iceberg. Um, if you want to keep the, the identity of, of your company secret, et cetera, um, it's, it's rare that you would give your home or, or, or your business address. So those are probably the people who, um, you know, for, for whatever reason, um, were, were not so concerned with, with keeping their identity mm. uh, 100% a secret. Where things become tricky and challenging is digging much deeper into the, into the data and and beginning to unpeel the almost Russian doll nature of how some people hide their assets offshore, whereby um, things are never actually kept in their names. It's kept in the names of, of shell companies or nominee shareholders or law firms that front for people, um, which is essentially what Mossack Fonseca does. Um, so the, the complexity of it was, was an eye-opener. The absolute vastness of of the data was was a massive challenge um, and, and i still don't think we've entirely got to grips with everything that's in there and i think this mm. is an ongoing project um with with much kind of um fruit still in the trees attached to it um i would also point your listeners to the great work that the african center of um investigative reporters to so african network of centers for investigative reporting um, have been doing as well. And um, there's a collation of all the Panama Papers stories from across Africa. Um, very interesting stuff. Um, but we're talking tip of the iceberg stuff here. Um, and uh, I, I think there's there's a lot more to come. Mm. One of the hard things, Lionel, I think, is that uh, so far on this show, we haven't actually talked about any specific stories. And there are so many that are coming out for all these mm. different regions around the world. And obviously, that's mm. extremely powerful just on the on the breadth mm. of these revelations. But sometimes it feels that the detail can be lost. So I was wondering if perhaps you could take us back to the Kulabuse Zuma case and just sort of, as an example, explain what was going on there and why it's important. Can I trade with you? <laughs> there we go. Let's do um, it. So, so Kulabuse Zuma was, was a story done by a colleague. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm, I, I could sketch that out in, in some basic detail. But I'm far more familiar with um, the, the story that, that I've done, which um, I think, if, if anything, Kulabuse Zuma is a sexy name because of, of who he's related to, et cetera. But um, the story that, that I uncovered from, from the Panama Papers is, is really kind of one of South Africa's um, most notorious semi-unsolved uh, white-collar corporate um, uh, 
uh, scams. Mm-hmm. And um, essentially what what happened there is that, you know, for the last 10 years, um, the, the alleged mastermind of this um, has managed to stay out of court and, and, and avoid having the charges heard um, against them. And, and these amount to about 3,000 charges of fraud um, and racketeering and um, violating foreign exchange regulations and stock exchange regulations. Um, and thousands of South African investors lost money um, when when um, this uh, listed company on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange collapsed. Um, and for me, what was very interesting was how central this offshore world was um, to this alleged mastermind's um, kind of conjuring tricks. Um, what what the offshore world allows people to do is is uh, essentially to operate um, as as a kind of a, a, a hidden hand um, in in business transactions. So you you what you think you're dealing with um, can be not necessarily who or what you're dealing with hmm. simply because Mossack Fonseca would would um, provide services that actually conceal the 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 owners or or, or the or the kind of um, the hidden hand behind a, a company. So, in in this respect, um, it was it was very revealing how um, this businessman Gary Porritt, uh, over about twenty years, used Mossack Fonseca's services to create a whole lot of shell companies that that did transactions that, on the face of it, looked like it's it's a transaction between person A and person B, um, but essentially it's actually Gary Porritt doing business with Gary Porritt um, and kind of conjuring value um, from supposed transactions, which in, in effect um, are actually phantom transactions. And what that did was um, inflate the share price of the listed company, sucked tons of South African investors in there, um, loads of them lost their money. Um, I spoke to, heartbreakingly, the, the um, headmaster of a school for severely intellectually handicapped people in in um, Filionskruen in the Free State, um, which invests um, its money in unit trusts in order to uh, further um, build facilities uh, for int- uh, intellectually handicapped people um, and also just the community in Filionskruen. And luckily, they didn't put all their eggs in the one basket, but they um, they invested in in a trust that was linked to this listed company and, of course, lost everything. And he was explaining to me how, you know, over that 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 pretty much set them back two or three years in terms of gymnasiums and, and other facilities they wanted to build in the area for for the community. So um, for me, it, it was an important look at an underreported area of, of South African mm. um, crime, which is which is corporate crime. It is the white collar stuff and, and how um, beyond numbers and figures, it actually has a very real impact on people. Now, Lionel, we're going to have to let you go in a minute. But just before we do, what impact do you think these investigations will have both on journalism and and how we go about these investigations and, and, and understanding our role as journalists as well on on the issue of tax havens? Do you think it's going to have any real meaningful impact on either? I think it, it, it furthers the notion that um, for 21st century journalism to be truly effective, it needs to be multilateral, it needs to be cross-border, it needs to be international, um, simply because of the way that international crime now works. Um, 
and politics and business and, and all of that. So it affirms that and, and, and it, it strengthens that, that model, which, um, is largely kind of pushes to the, pushes to the fore, um, kind of independent or, or left of field or, um, non-mainstream media outlets. If you look at the vast majority of the, the partners in the ICIJ thing, um, you know, we're not talking that. Sorry, did we lose Lionel there? Um, I'm here. Oh, okay, perfect. Yeah, sorry, I, I thought I'd lost you too. No, it's um, yeah, we're, we're not looking at, at the necessarily the established mainstream media, although The Guardian's done great work in the UK. Um, we're looking at independent entities like like um, Amabungane that, hmm. that can move quickly and, 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 and share information and collaborate. So it's an important development for journalism. Um, in terms of tax havens, I think it really helps to put the issue into the public domain. Hmm. Um, Africa loses more money through tax evasion uh, and illicit financial flows that go out through this very system um, than it does through foreign aid and direct foreign investment combined. It's a massive, massive issue, and I don't think enough attention has been paid to it. Um, and hopefully from an African perspective, this foregrounds the need for there to be much greater transparency um, around around how corporates and, and businesses and individual taxpayers um, are their affairs are transparent and, and they are held to account. And uh, internationally, mm. it's, it's, it's a massive debate too. Um, I think that tax havens themselves are a massive problem. Um, and, and part of the problem is that um, money and investment goes to the tax havens with, with the, the lowest level of transparency and openness and accountability. So it becomes a race to the bottom. And there really has to be a global standard by which all tax havens are are held accountable and, and hopefully that will this project will push that um closer to coming to fruition i hope so lionel lionel thank you so much for making time for us and i hope one day you write a book about how on earth to keep a secret like this for over a year i'm I'm waiting <laughs> to see who plays lionel in the movie on the panama Ooh, papers I'm like thinking, ryan reynolds yeah i think ryan reynolds lionel what do you think of that um, well, I am willing to be my own body double should uh, the need ever arise. All right. You heard it here. Multi-talented. It's confirmed. Lionel, thank you so much. Cheers. Thank you, gents. Bye. Fantastic. We're just going to go into a short break, and then we'll talk more about the Panama Papers, focusing on what does this mean for Africa. And we're hearing a lot about this from a global perspective, but what does it mean for our development, for our growth, and, and what can we do to sort of get the handle on this? When it comes to foreign investment, what is and what isn't allowed What happens to your overseas money when you die? With the changes regarding overseas funds and how SARS treats you if you're a South African taxpayer, St. James Global has the answers for you. They've been doing this for years and focus on preserving and protecting offshore wealth as well as creating succession planning structures. Make sure your worldwide assets pass on into the future. Go to stjamesglobal.com for more information. That's stjamesglobal.com, your independent wealth managers. St. James Global is an authorized financial services provider. The Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. 
Good afternoon. You're back with us on the Daily Maverick Show on CliffCentral.com. Today we're talking about the Panama Papers and just trying to dig through, you know, what makes a tax haven a tax haven? Where do these things come from? We also spoke with a journalist who was part of digging, digging through the massive, massive load of paperwork and, 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 and this incredible international collaboration of journalists to, to make sense of just so much information. Next, we'd like to get an, an African perspective and we'll be speaking to Crystal Simeone, who's the policy lead uh, at Tax and International Financial of Tax and International Financial Architecture at Tax Justice Network. Crystal, can you hear us? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, fantastic. Now, Crystal, as we're talking about all this, is this big global perspective and this sort of, we're speaking very big macro terms, but um, I'd love if you could just bring this home for us a bit. And, and, and based on your work, what, what, what does the release of the Panama Papers and this, this media hype and all these conversations that are now happening, what does this mean for us as a continent? Sure. So, um, for well, the first thing is, for once, Africa hasn't been caught with our trousers down. Um, it's an issue that we've been speaking about for a while now. Um, and the Panama leaks just bring to light a lot of what we've been screaming and shouting mm. about. Mm. And every time I say I work for the Tax Justice Network Africa, people sort of glaze over in terms of like, oh, that's, you know, tax mm. boring things. But it's really an issue that we all really need to be cognizant of, be paying attention to. Um, and it also does a lot in terms of shift, shifting the narrative. And I know somebody brought up the issue of corrupt African yeah. leaders and yeah. the political elite. Um, but it shifts the narrative from being, you know, the spotlight just on them. We do need to have the spotlight on them, mm. but we also need to be paying attention to multinationals and how they um, are using a system, a global system that is flawed to make sure that they are able to navigate systems and move profits away from um, our continent and our countries into, you know, Hello. So, hello, Crystal. Can you hear us? Perfect. Um, we'll just get sort of our producer Duncan to just to just get Crystal back on. But I'm. I mean, I, I love. I love uh, that that people are calling out the, the the fallacy that it's not it's not this focus on oh you must deal with the corrupt people they're the ones evading tax but there's a whole infrastructure of people aiding them to do that. No, I think that is one of the core things, and this I think this stuff works in conjunction. You have. You have on the one side loopholes and problems with governance that allow sort of the conditions for this going on. And then on the other side, multinationals and sort of rich individuals and huge multinationals sending enormous amounts um, um, of funds uh, out of the continent. Absolutely. I mean, I wonder if there's, if there's a frustration, I suppose, Crystal, who I think is back on. Crystal, can yeah. you hear us? There we go. Yes, I am back um, Is there a bit of a frustration? I mean, as you mentioned, you've been working on this for years. This is what, this is what you do, right? Tax and international financial yes. architecture. That's you. And now we here we are. We are tweeting and we're talking. And we're like, oh, illicit financial flows. Do you feel? Is it a bit frustrating? Like that you've been trying to say this for years. It's actually a little bit refreshing okay. if, if finally there's people who finally understand what I do and all the noise that I, I, I make, what it's all about. And so there's been interesting conversations and very interesting debates, even within um, the circle of friends around me, mm. around what does this all mean for Africa? Um, the last journalist who spoke before me spoke about how Africa loses quite substantial amounts of money. Um, the high-level panel chaired by Tabo Mbeki that um, UNECA and the AU commissioned puts that figure very conservatively at $50 billion annually. And that's a very, very conservative figure. Now, if we get, you know, $46.1 billion in terms of development aid, um, you can do the math. 
in terms of development, in terms of what we can do for our continent, what we can do for our, our countries. It's a really huge problem that really needs you know, all the attention that we can give it. And we need to begin to have the right policies in place, um, the right legislation. We begin. We need to begin to have a critical mass of ordinary African citizens who are able to push hmm. to make sure that our governments and our leaders are making policies that are, that are protecting us. Well, I love that you mentioned this policy aspect. And, and, and I'm curious as uh, in regards to sort of the meeting that was recently had, you know, at the AU, um, and, 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 you know, we spoke and you were there. And I'm, and I'm curious as to whether the heads of state and the finance ministers on the continent, is this something that's been high on their agenda, sort of closing the loopholes and, and get, getting their policies in order? So it was really interesting being there as the story broke in Addis mm. um, with all the ministers and, and all our policy leaders. Um, there, there wasn't too much conversation around it, mm. um, surprisingly, or not surprising for me. Um, but definitely in terms of the continent and what we're doing, like I said, we are making strides with the, with a high level panel. Um, we're making strides in making sure that the recommendations that came out of that are beginning to be implemented in, in our countries and that's a policy push that we're where the organization I work for Tax Justice Network is mm. is explicitly pushing for. Um I mean Lamini Zuma mentioned the Panama leaks and said that it's a problem and we need to get our money back, but that's not enough. We need very clear laws and we need clear policies in place to make sure that companies um are registered for tax purposes, for example. We need to make sure that we're exchanging information on the continent and in our regions. Um and the African Tax Administration Forum based in South Africa has really great models that we should be using within our countries. Um we really need to begin to renegotiate renegotiate some of our double tax agreements. Um, and then also we really need to begin to strengthen the capacity of our revenue authorities and our policymakers to be able to understand and to be able to tackle this huge, crazy monster um, as best we can. Christelle, it sounds like you're saying that uh, local, lo- locally governments need to sort of close all these loopholes and, and really sort of push more progressive policies. But isn't one of the challenges also that big, um, very, very wealthy companies like the UK and the US that have had a strong history um, of supporting almost these taxes, tax evasion measures and international organizations like the OECD? How do we lobby them to also mm-hmm. um, um, change, change uh, these policies and laws? So there has begun to be a shift um, in, in changing these policies. And the OECD has the BEPS process, which mm-hmm. is the base erosion and profit shifting process. Unfortunately for us as an African continent, we did not have too much of a say in terms of voice and in terms of representation of our priorities as a region. Um, these, th- This process will be a framework, a set of guidelines and rules um, to guide the financial architecture globally that we need to, to adhere to. But it's sort of weird because we didn't have a space at the table. Um, so we are pushing for a more inclusive process, whether that's a UN tax body or a more global inclusive um, body that can begin to set an agenda that is inclusive enough, that has all voices. Um, at the moment, ATAF, who I spoke um, on previously, mm. has began to push um, for space um, within the BEPS OECD process, but it's not enough. Um, we have our own models 
on the continent that we need to also begin to recognize and begin to implement and ratify the models of. Um, we have very good ones that have taken the very best of global standards and models that we need to begin to use and take more seriously. Um, we need to be able to work better regionally and across regions on the continent. Um, we need to be, be able to speak as one voice, as one Africa, because we hold the resources. The largest flow of illicit financial flows comes from the extractive sector in Africa. Um, we're very rich in natural resources. And once we acknowledge that and figure out how best to navigate the system to you know, make sure that we retain as much as we can, um, the financing for development meeting last year in Addis, which was looking at ways to, to fund the huge sustainable development goals that we have ahead of us, um, puts forth that we need to begin to look at domestic revenue mobilization. And we can only do that through a number of ways. And tax is a very, very important mm. one. Yeah. So we need to make sure that uh, multinationals pay their fair share. We're not asking them to pay any more. It's just pay what's, what, what you, what's, you know, what, what you're due to pay. Um, and that, Let's begin from there. And absolutely. I mean, I, I was trying to live tweet that. It's, it's such a powerful sort of sentiment, and I felt dismally. Um, Crystal, you mentioned some some sort of terminologies that I'd love to just get some clarity on. You mentioned double tax. You mentioned sort of profit profit shifting. Could you just give us sort of a brief explanation of, sure. of how companies do that? Um, so double tax agreements um, are, you know, they, we've been signed a number between a number of countries. So I'll give an example of Kenya and Mauritius. Mm. And the Tax Justice Network Africa is actually taking the Kenyan government to court over the double tax agreement between Kenya and Mauritius. Essentially, in very simple ways, it's um, it's supposed to be a way for um, organizations and individuals not to have to pay tax twice. But mm. you can also use it to your advantage and use it so that you can navigate the system and end up either paying a very low tax, mm. for example, in Mauritius, which is 10 to 15 percent, or pay actual actually no tax. Um, so we need to be, begin to look at those double tax agreements more carefully, put more scrutiny on them, see how how you know how can we renegotiate them better to make sure that we're not losing out and we're not giving away all our taxing rates um, as African countries. So that's the first one. Mm. Um, profit shifting, and this goes towards transfer pricing, I okay. would imagine, is what, what companies and multinationals do um, is you maximize profits in jurisdictions that have higher tax rates and you move your profit into jurisdictions that have very little tax mm. rates or um, very high secrecy. So the Cayman Islands, for example, will give you the benefit of secrecy and the benefit of low taxation. And so you ensure that you move your, you've, you find a way to navigate the system to move your profits there. Um, and Nick Shackson's book, if you read it, gives a really great example with bananas. Um, so if I grow bananas in Kenya, um, they're picked and I sell them to a, con a company who's offshore, who's, who's been incorporated in Mauritius, for example. And I sell it to my Mauritius company at $1 per banana. And then my company in Mauritius, which is essentially the same country, will then sell it to the UK or mm. wherever at $3. And so they retain their their profit or um, more of their profit in in Mauritius, whereas all their costs will be in Kenya um, and being taxed on the one dollar, which has all the costs. So you mm. can imagine mm. how the game goes. 
Now, Chris, you mentioned before that sort of now these Panama Papers have have sort of blown this thing wide open or, or shown us so more, much more insight on what's going on that all of a sudden even your friends and the people you know understand what you do. I was wondering, is there mm-hmm. is there like a case or what, one one thing that has emerged from the Panama Papers that really sticks out for you and you're like, that's what that's exactly what I'm talking about. Um, so just the magnitude of the amounts that we're talking about and considering that this is just one law firm, um, that for me is, is, is huge. Um, you know, a lot of people think that it's, you know, minimal amounts of money that are transacting, but it's not. It's, it's huge amounts of money and the amount of information and data, um, that is used and, and, you know, someone called it something that's akin to the Russian dolls where you have like layers and layers Mm. of information and transactions um, that the intricacies of that and the beginning to show how it works exactly. And then layer that onto Africa and, you know, the fact that we have so many problems and yet here we are losing so much money. Um, And we have, we have a campaign called stop the bleeding campaign, which is exactly Mm. that Mm. we're actually bleeding um, as a continent in terms of illicit financial flows. Crystal, I couldn't put it better, better than that. Thank you so much for making time and, and please, please keep up the excellent work. Thank you so much. I hope you can all sign the petition. I hope you all join the movement. Um, and thank you for bringing this up. Fantastic. We'll share the petition that Stop the Bleeding. That was us speaking to Crystal Simeone, the policy lead on tax and international financial architecture from the Tax Justice Network. Doing some excellent work. I mean, combined with investigative journalist Lionel Four, we spoke to, and of course, the author, Nicholas Shaxon. Sorry. Just about to wrap up. Greg, I hear it's Jacob Zuma's birthday. Any 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 sort of well wishes from your end? Um, yeah, I hope he hope he has a great one. Okay, uh, it's also Proven Finance Minister Proven Gordon's birthday. There's a lot going on, and breaking news is that Lionel Four, who we spoke to, looks a lot like Lionel Reynolds. So we we've got you know, that, that's quite quite some big highlights from today. Yeah, no, definitely we're pushing pushing the boundaries of journalism right here. <laughs> that's us. I'm surprised we haven't gotten the invite to the to the investigative journalism consortium yet. Not yet, but if, but if we if we keep up this work, Kingsley, I'll just keep checking my spam. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Thank you for tuning in to the Daily Mavic Show on Cliff Central. Remember, download the podcast, share it far and wide, and we really appreciate you listening and you know hanging out with us every week. See you next week, same time, same place. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays one to two p.m. on CliffCentral.com.